just like right here in scripture that it's found. This is a testimony of the entire Bible. That the Christian walk is about a continual separation from sin. Because sin creeps back in. It continues to, to come back. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Amen. Okay. Verse 1, it says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord, and I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Or, sorry, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is in a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place in the congregation. I will bless the Lord. Now, again, we don't know much background on Psalm 26, just like 25 and 24. We don't have much of a historical background on what's going on at the time that David writes this. But we do know that it's written by David. And we can look at his life and kind of the things he was going through and, and experienced. And David was a man who experienced a lot of high highs and a lot of low lows. Um, sounds like a rap song. But he went through a lot personally, uh, even in his own family. Uh, a man after God's own heart, but but a lot of times the sin of David later caught up with him. There's consequences in his life. Uh, his own son Absalom, who tried to steal the kingdom away from him and steal the hearts of the people. Um, he had one of his sons actually rape one of his daughters. I mean, it was it's an, a gnarly story that you can read in the Bible. Um, it's in the Bible. It's rated R. It's it's gross because listen. Because of David's sin, David stopped at one point pursuing his family. He stopped walking in, in, um, in truth because of sin that he had committed in the past. Um, even his own, um, his family was, was incredibly, at times, wicked. But this is the man in which the Bible brings forth the Messiah. Like, it's through his line. It's, it's a story of God's redemptive hand. And, and no one in the line of the Messiah was perfect. In fact, three of the women in the line of the Messiah were prostitutes. So, so we see throughout even the history of mankind that no one has been perfect ever. And God uses broken things. God can use broken things. He uses broken things to bring forth his glory and bring forth his kingdom. But in David's life, he went through a lot of difficulty as well. He was running from Saul at one point, who was bent on seeing him killed and destroyed. And so for about nine, nine or so years, David was on the run um, from King Saul. And so perhaps that's what he's talking about. There's lies being spread about him. There's, there's rumors being spread about him. But he uses this word vindicate or vindication. And it simply means give me justice or defend my reputation. 
So David is, at this point in his life, he's doing things the right way. Have you ever felt that way? Like, I'm doing things the right way. And then you get, oh, man. My wife recently got a ticket, like, from a cop, uh, a police officer, excuse me, from a police officer, because she didn't fully stop coming out of, like, something. There's no one on the road. It's, like, 7 o'clock in the morning, and she's pulling out of a driveway, and boom, guy lights her up, and he's like, you didn't fully stop. And she's like, I did vindicate me, oh God, is what she screamed out the window. No, but as the guy gives her a ticket, she's like, this is ridiculous. Like, if only, like, someone would vindicate me. That's what David is saying. Lauren, I'm sorry if I told that story and you didn't want me to, but um, she doesn't listen to this anyway. So, so anyway, but, but so vindication simply means give me justice or defend my reputation. David's saying, like, I'm, I'm walking in integrity. I'm doing things the right way. But yet, there's lies about me. There's, there's these, these things about me. And instead of defending himself, he prays, God, come to my aid. Like, I don't need to defend myself and start a campaign of, like, I'm great and I'm actually a, a stand-up guy. He prays, Lord, I want you to be the one to defend me, to defend my reputation. Because David had chosen to walk in integrity and, and has chosen to trust the Lord, he says, I feel like I'm standing on solid ground. and I'm not slipping or tripping is what he's saying. Like, I, I'm trusting in God. I, I know that God understands my heart. God sees what I'm doing. And so as I walk in his truth and I'm doing what I'm, what I'm called to do, I'm walking in, in integrity, I'm trusting the Lord, I have stable footing, he says. I'm not slipping back. I, I feel like everything's kind of solidified here in this time of chaos in my life. But he also uses this word examination. Look at verse 2. He says, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Examination, it's a word that means the testing of metals in the Hebrew. It's the testing of metals to see their true value. And so David says, test my works to see if they're done in, in honesty and in, in pure action or a pure heart. Lord, I want to, you to examine these things in my life. Examine my heart and my mind, he says, meaning test my emotions and my decisions, whether they are right or wrong. Like, Lord, you're the one who knows my heart the best. You're the one who knows my intentions and my emotions. And so, Lord, I want you to be the one to vindicate me and examine me because everything else can be skewed and everything else can be spun and everything else can kind of be uh, washed out and, and untrue. And he says, Lord, but you know the truth. And so, I'm resting in you. I want you to be the one. He reiterates this same thing in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offense or any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David, again, just says, Lord, my heart is open to you. Examine me. Search me to the depths of who I am. And Lord, if I'm wrong, I'm willing to admit that I'm wrong if that means we're right, like our relationship's good. So I'm willing to say, God, search me. Is there anything offensive in me? Is there anything that's causing a rift between you and I? If there is, call me out on it. Like, tell me, reveal it to me. If I'm wrong, God, please. Because I want to be right with you. I want to be uh, in a way that, that's leading me in the way of everlasting. He says, I want to go down the road of destruction. I want to be walking in the path of righteousness that leads to everlasting. 
But notice the terminology, walking and slipping. And he says later in the text that he sat or that he's sitting with hypocrites. There's another one where he says that he's standing, okay? David is describing for us how we keep walking with the Lord. How do you keep walking with the Lord? As you grow as an adult, as you grow as a uh, human being, I don't know, as you grow up, like a lot of us have grown up, perhaps you've grown up in the church, okay? Maybe you've grown up in the church. I grew up in the church. Um, I was a preacher's son and all that stuff. PK and all that, all that jazz. Um, junior high pastor, but still. Um, same thing. And so I grew up in it and was taught from an early age, like, this is the way of the Lord. And, and it's a great heritage. I'm so grateful and thankful that my parents devoted that time to teach me about Jesus. Like, I, I can't complain. Like, it was great. I'm so thankful that I have that foundation. But perhaps, like me and like you, if you've grown up in the church, there comes a point in your life where you're like, I just don't know anymore. Like, I've been told my whole life that the world does this and the world does that, but I'm seeing a lot of my friends and a lot of people around me do things this way, and I'm like, is it really that gnarly? If, if I give in a little bit, am I really going to be pulled into that direction and that path? Like, come on. And so we begin to doubt what we've been given, right? It, it was the same thing. I think it's the same thing for, for those that, um, if you remember the story in Solomon's reign as king. He was the wisest man who ever lived. That two women came to him fighting over a child. One had rolled over their child in the middle of the night and, and had suffocated that child. And so they bring this, and, and that woman had taken the other woman's baby in the middle of the night. And so they come to the king and they're like, this is my child. She's like, no, she's stealing my kid. You remember? The, you remember? Okay. All the kids who grew up at church are like, yes, I remember. Yes, I know what's coming. There's a sword. <laughs> but so Solomon's like, <laughs> Solomon says, he's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the child in half. And you get a half and you get a half. And the, the, one of the women speaks up and she says, no, 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 no. Give her the baby. Let her have the child. And the woman's like, yeah, give me the child. And Solomon says, give the child back to her. That's the true mother. The mother would would give of her child and, and separate herself from the child before she would ever see, you know, harm come to it. That's the real mother. And the same for us, I think growing, growing up in the church, a lot of times we can wonder, like, we didn't give birth to it necessarily, and so we don't have as much skin in the game. To where our parents or those, our grandparents, whoever, they walked in the world and they, they were just ravaged by sin and they saw the destruction in their parents and the destruction in their culture and the destruction at, you know, of their times. And, and they come to Jesus and they're like, this is life. This is life. And yet we're raised in it and we're like, ah, whatever. Like, I don't know if it's life. And every generation doubts the generation before it. Like, why do they do it that way? And, you know, they always fight against that. And the same question, and I think in my, sorry to just be talking about myself, but in, I know in my friend group, we went through, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade Christian school. Um, I went to Bible college. I went on mission trips with a lot of my friends. And listen, I'm one of the only ones who's still walking with Jesus. One of the only ones who still believes that the Bible is God's word, true, and that this is life, like life is found in Jesus Christ. One of the last ones. 
We all had the same foundation, but what happened? They stopped at one point walking with the Lord. They started slipping. I also had a time in which I slipped. We always slip back. And, and so what David is saying and describing for us is how do we keep walking with the Lord? How do I remain steadfast in my walk with Jesus and continuing to move forward all the while retaining a love and an affection for the things of God and a hatred for the things of the world and, and the hatred of sin and not wanting those things. Although it's enticing and it draws us in and, and promises us the world and we're like, no, but I'm going to live for the, I'm going to live for the eternal, not the temporal. Like I'm, I'm going to live for the eternal. How do we keep doing that? I think that's a wonderful, that's, like, that's wisdom to receive from someone. How did you keep walking with the Lord for 40, 30, whatever years? Um, and so he tells us, verse 4 and 5, he says, I have not sat with idolatrous mortals. I love that he says mortals. Like, what else was there, David? <laughs> Nephilim or, or, or the Rephaim, maybe, perhaps? Oh, giants in the land. What, like, why mortals? Half God, half... Anyway, that's a different subject for a different time. But he says, I have not sat with idolatrous mortals. This doesn't mean that he sat... He doesn't, like, hey, go up to people in a restaurant, like, hey, are you idol worshipers? Or I'm not sitting at that table. I'm not sitting with you. I'm not sharing a hoagie around you, you dirty sinner, right? Remember the Pharisees thought that, like, by sharing a meal, that your sin would transfer into me through, through food. Like if you touched a banana and then I touched the banana, then it was like, oh gosh, like your, your, oh, your sin has now been, you know, transferred to me. So what is David saying when he says, I haven't sat with the idolatrous? It means that he has separated himself from sin personally, personally. In that, when it says sat, it means that you've given your, your, um, You've given place to people in your life that will speak into your life. You're, you're giving place to people in your life that, that have a, an influence in your life, right? He's saying, I haven't sat with the idolatrous. He, he talks about walking, standing, sitting in regards to how and who we spend our time with or join ourselves to. That's what this verse is describing. And if you remember Psalm 1, what did Psalm chapter 1, when we first started this book 97 weeks ago, look what it said. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He's reiterating the same thing as he began. Blessed is the man who doesn't sit, stand, and walk in, in the ways of sin and give place to influence influence of the world into my life. Same thing here. How do I keep walking with Jesus? I continue to separate myself from sin personally. Like I keep doing that. And this is not just like right here in scripture that it's found. This is a testimony of the entire Bible that the Christian walk is about a continual separation from sin because sin creeps back in. It continues to, to come back. You remember in, in the nation of Israel, they were called to circumcise every male child. Ouch. It was an outward sign of what needed to happen inwardly, right? 
The removal of the flesh. Deuteronomy chapter 10. God says, circumcise therefore your heart and no longer be stubborn. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe, he says. So the nation of Israel, he says, you can do all the outward performance uh, uh, around, but if you do not cut away the flesh from your heart and sin from your heart, like you're not going to grow. It's incredible that, listen, this is not something we can do by ourselves. Like, I can't be like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut away the flesh in my heart, like right now. It doesn't work that way. This is a work of who? God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. Yes, all those answers are acceptable of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of sanctification in my heart. God, that when the Holy Spirit, listen, listen, when the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and says, don't, and you listen and you obey, it's the process of sanctification. You are beginning to learn to, to yield to the Holy Spirit in your life. And as you yield to the Holy Spirit speaking in that still small voice in your life, you begin to grow in righteousness. This is not something that you graduate from, that you're like, I'm 65, I'm retiring from Christianity. Like, it continues on. Like, this is something, it's a lifetime a, a, a process of sanctification. So it's not just an Old Testament idea. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that of the whole body going to hell. Jesus says, again, the, the severity of sin, if your right hand is causing you to sin, like it just keeps punching people. He, he uses this drastic thing like, Cut it away. Get rid of it. Maybe that will help you stop. Here's the point of that whole text. No matter what, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Guess what? If you were cut off both your hands and plucked out both your eyes, you better believe you'd still sin. Still. I don't even need my eyes to sin. I don't need my hands. Why? It begins inside of me. And Jesus is making a point, the severity that we take with sin, to separate ourselves from it. But he makes the point that you can't do it by yourself. It's a work of the Holy Spirit from the inside out. No matter how many things I cut off, like I'm limping up here and like everything's gone. I can still have the capacity to sin greatly. And so he says it's something that takes its place on the inside. But, but not only in the Gospels. This continues on. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Paul asks these questions. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? He says, should, if, if grace is what we're saved by, then should we just continue to sin? Because we don't want God to not have the opportunity to pour out grace. I just want to give God the opportunity because I love him so much. What would he do without me? He'd have all this grace stored up and nowhere to put it, you know? That's their whole mentality. Should we continue to sin that God has a place to put his grace upon us and show his great grace? What does Paul say? You're crazy. He says, by no means. Or that's stupid in our terminology. No is another translation. No, absolutely not, actually, is what it's translating to. 
How can we, he goes on to say, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him and by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Whew. Did you get that? What a glorious verse. Paul tells the Romans, should you just continue to, if we've been saved by grace, does that mean we just keep walking as we always have? He says it's impossible because those that have come to Jesus by faith, the old person is dead and they've been raised to life anew in Jesus Christ. Absolutely not. There's a cutting away, a separation of sin on a personal level. And you know what that is. Guys, you know what you struggle with. You know where your battle is. You know where the devil knows what you're, what you're tempted by most. You know. And so there's this daily choice to say no to it, to separate ourselves from it. Oh, but it's not just in, in Paul's epistles. If you look at the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, which is argued whether or not it was Paul or not, Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews says, since we have this wonderful like history of those that have walked with God and served the Lord and, and run their race faithfully and made it to the end uh, faithful to the Lord, he says, we also, let us lay aside, notice what he says, every weight and sin, weight and sin, okay, that's there for a reason. If you look at joggers, um, obviously I'm one of them. No, have you ever watched like someone who's jogging or running and you're like, wow, good job. Like good for you. <laughs> like you, they're usually in, in these shorts that are, are, should only be worn in private, right? Like those are, <laughs> those are short. All right. You know, and their, their shoes are so light, like track runners, you know, it's like the lightest thing ever. And you know, Nike, like featherweight, like all this stuff, you know, right. Everything is so light. The tank top is like made of, of like, I don't know, like bird feathers. And it's like floats. It doesn't even actually go in your drawer. It, it floats in the midair, you know, it's so light or whatever. And they, and they, they like strip, strip everything down so that they can shed every kind of weight. No one goes out to run a race and they're like, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm Unless you're one of those Marine guys and they put on the weighted vest, you know, and they're like, yeah, manliness. Like, I want to I be one. I want to be that guy, but I can't because running makes me want to throw up. But um, like, it's rare to see someone jogging in like in Doc Martens or combat boots or, or whatever, or big baggy pants. It's like when you see people go to the beach in jeans and you're like, aw, and they're walking out in the water and it's like, it, that's gonna be rough. That's gonna be rough for you. And they're like drowning in, in ankle deep water because it's just filling up. And, like, <laughs> and you're like, yeah, there's certain things you shouldn't wear in the water, jeans being one of them. You know, it, 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 there's certain, you know, and it's the same thing. The writer of Hebrews says that there's not only other sins in our life that are, are obviously need to be cut off so that we can run to the Lord. They'll hinder us, they'll weigh us down. But there's also things in our life that are just weights. It's not a bad thing. 
It's not like a sin thing, but it's definitely hindering my walk with the Lord. Like, I have freedom in Christ. Yeah, I love those verses. I have freedom. Yeah. But is your freedom causing you to be weighed down in your walk in, 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 with Jesus? If it is, the writer of Hebrews says, lay that aside so that you can run hard. That you can run with endurance. Because if you're running and, and understanding that it takes a while to get where you want to go, the more weight you're carrying, the harder the journey is. So he says, why not get rid of that stuff? So that we can run to our full capacity, our full potential. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, last verse, he says, your boasting is not good. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church who are like, we're so loving that we never call people on sin. There was a, a guy in their church, in the Corinthian church, who was actually having an affair with his mom, okay, or his stepmother um, at this point. And the people are like, it's cool. Everything's fine. Come on in, brother. And Paul says, you're boasting in this love that you have? He's like, that's not good. That's not okay. In fact, the only way to keep something pure and keep something good is by separating from that. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's talking about baking of bread, which was so common. He's like, that little agent of leaven, which is so small, it, it goes and permeates the entirety of your dough and causes it to rise. He says, that's what sin is like. It, it affects everything. It, it permeates all of it. it. It extends to all of it. You can't section part of it off and keep it from the other. He's like, it, it extends in all. And so do we keep doing that? He says, no separate from sin. How do we keep walking with Jesus? How do we keep steadfast? Like David says, my feet aren't slipping. We continue to separate ourselves personally from sin. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. That's my favorite verse. As you really are unleavened. We're just a bunch of lumps. You're, you know, he's like, cleanse out the old, man. Get rid of it. You're a new lump. You've been made whole and new in the Lord. Oh, man. But not only do we separate from sin personally, but there's a separation from the world relationally. Look at what he goes on to say. Right? I have sat not with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. This is not David saying, like, I'm better than everyone. And then, like, I'm, I'm David. Like, I'm not sitting with that guy. I'm not sitting with this guy. What he's saying, again, is there are certain people in, in this world that I cannot align myself with. There are certain relationships that if I'm going to keep walking with Jesus, listen, guys, this is serious. Like, like I said, personal testimony, dude, there's a lot of my friends who are not walking with Jesus anymore. And a lot, and I'm not to like freak you out and like, you're not going to walk with Jesus. But listen, this is serious. Like I, I've seen it. I've been a pastor for almost 15 years. Like I've seen it happen through relationships, through unequally being, uh, being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I'm not talking about you trying to reach like, right? You're not, we're not talking about you reaching people that are lost with the gospel. That's not what that's about. We're called and commanded to do that. But, but making relationships out of, out of or with people that do not align with God. Um, 
Charles Spurgeon, he says this. He says, it is difficult even to a miracle to keep, to keep God's commandments and evil company too. It's almost a miracle. It's a miracle to try and keep God's commandments or keep them and hang out with evil company. When it says sad, it's meaning his close friends, those who he allows to have influence in his life. Because sinfulness is led into by sinful relationships. Sinful relationships. We become, guys, we become like those we hang around, don't we? I had a friend um, growing up, still one of my closest friends, who I love to death. And when we hang out, there's a, a way of talking that begins. And we just like kind of fall into it. You know what I'm talking about? And it's like this, it's this weird like accent thing that my wife hates. So I'll be hanging out with him and then we start joking about stuff. And then I come home and she's like, oh my gosh, you've been hanging out with so-and-so, haven't you? And I'm like, yeah, how'd you know? And she's like, cause you talk like him, you sound like him. Guys, it, you know, it's as silly as that is. You start talking like each other, but, but eventually you start to morph into, you begin to adopt beliefs. That, that you cannot have like deep friendship or, or fellowship and not be changed by those deep friendships or fellowship. Can you? That's like two people who are married who, who don't amalgamate together and become like one. Like they're, they're at some point you become very much alike each other. There's differences in different ways, but ultimately you become like one person, same mind and your personalities start to change because of each other. And we become like those we hang around. And when we, be, when we compromise by becoming unequally yoked together with unbelievers, they are who could lead us away from the Lord. Again, I'm not talking about reaching people for the lost. I'm talking about aligning yourself with people who hate the very God that you worship. Right? When he says that they're, I do not sit with the idolatrous, meaning people who worship idols. That's what idol, idolatrous means. Those who worship idols, they don't worship the same God. Therefore, they have a different worldview. They have a different set of values. They have a different set of almost just about anything. You know, yeah, they're conservative though, and they love red states. Cool, sure. But at some point, you're going to differ on like who God is and why those things matter. Right? Well, we're conservative because we believe in blah, 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 blah. Cool. Where does that come from? Why is that there? Why is life sacred? Why is marriage sacred? Why do we stand upon these principles? Why is all this stuff real? Where does that come from for you? Where's the core of it? Where is it birthed from? For the Christian, your political views are stemmed or should stem from what scripture says in your love for Jesus. And that is what molds and shapes it. Not anything else. And what you align with. We align with Jesus Christ and what he says. Not to get all political. I hate politics. It's stupid as stupid. And I get it, the necessary like, part of it. But I'm sick of, I'm sick of us thinking that we're going to fix the world if we just get the right leader in it. That's why Jesus came, for crying out loud. If humanity can be, <laughs> if humanity can be fixed by a human being, then Jesus never had to come. But the reason Jesus came is because we are messed up. Even if you look at church history, Constantine, yeah, like trying to make the world into like a Christian. It, it, guys, Jesus Christ is the only one. 
doesn't mean you don't vote. doesn't mean you don't get involved. doesn't mean, again, doesn't mean we're passionate about what we believe and why we believe it, but where does it come from? It comes from our belief in Jesus Christ. That's where it's birthed from. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship is light with darkness, he says. Do not be unequally yoked. It means too, like when they would yoke two oxen together, they had to make sure that the oxen were, were well balanced in strength because the weaker one would drag back and it would actually snap the neck of the stronger oxen. It would kill it. And so the writer of, of, of or Paul even says, he says, that's the picture here. The weaker will drag the other down. And what happens is the weaker will survive, but the stronger's neck will get broken. That's why 3 John 1, 11, it says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Now, we cannot move over the word hypocrisy without talking about it for a second. Is the church filled with hypocrites? Yes, it is. And here I am. Like, I, I am chief. A hypocrite is someone who plays the part, who professes with their mouth but lives contrary or doesn't behave like a Christian. Do I always behave like a Christian? Not even at church. Like, uh, <laughs> that's where I should be most behaved. But like, that, even then, I don't always behave like a Christian or talk like I should or whatever. But does that, yeah, does that make me a hypocrite? Sure, yeah, absolutely. But we have to talk about another thing here. How many of you are hypocrites? Just like, raise your hand as we get a count. Cool, right on. So you profess to be a Christian and there are times where you don't behave like one, right? Yeah, it's hypocritical. We don't want to do that. We want to stray away from that. But we are all hypocritical at times, yes, because we do profess to know God, but sometimes play the part, behave contrary to scripture, yes. But we also have people who justify bad behavior in the name of not wanting to act like a hypocrite. Okay? Because we're angry. We give into that feeling or emotion rather than behaving right because, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I need to be true to myself. Have you heard that before? I need to be true to myself. But what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. Wanting to do what's wrong but stopping and doing what's right is not hypocritical. Do you know that? Like me wanting to, to kill someone but I stop and I'm like, oh man, I was just so hypocritical in that moment. Is that hypocritical? No. That's called self-control and it's called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's called being a Christian. Well, I want to be true to my authentic self, according to my authentic self. Your authentic self, the Bible says, is deceitful and wicked above all things. So if you're like, I want to be true to my authentic self, but the authentic self wants what it should not have, which is sin, then staying away from it and separating yourself from it is not hypocritical. It's called being a Christian. It's called walking with Jesus. It's called being submitted to the will of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not hypocritical. Is that clear? Okay. Cool. So when you're like, man, I just feel like the, what I think a true definition of hypocrisy is someone who is driven by their emotions and driven by what they feel instead of doing what God says. I want to be authentic. 
Oh man, do you know that your authentic self has been totally consumed by sin to the depths of who you are and who I am? And only when I am submitted to the will of God will I truly walk in truth, like Emma read tonight. I walk in truth. I want to be true to who God has made me to be. Who he has made me to be, not who I was, but who he has made me to be, a new creation in Christ. A new lump, right? <laughs> a new lump, like not the old one. So it's not hypocritical, guys. We have to make that distinction because the world is mixing it all up. The, the world tells the church, like, you guys are all full of hypocrites because you don't, you know, <laughs> whatever. It's like, yeah, do I profess to love Jesus and do I profess to live a holy life? Do I always? No, I don't. But you saying that you don't believe in God and living in debauchery is also hypocrisy because you're living against what God has imaged you to, to be. You're living against your authentic true self, which is image bearer of God. So there, take that. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> like, yeah, sure. Everyone's a hypocrite. Everyone is. Oh, sorry. There's a, there's a fine line between ranting and preaching, and I think I crossed it. So, verse 6. It says, I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house. Look what he says, first of all, I will wash my hands in innocence. Before he goes into like fellowship in the house of the Lord, first he goes to the altar. He goes to the altar. The altar always proceeds the holy place of God. If you look at the tabernacle, there was a wash basin. There was the, the place in where the sacrifice was made. There was always this cleansing and then cleansing again and cleansing again before they enter into fellowship with God. I don't know if you've ever come to like a worship service and you want to worship the Lord, but you totally blew it before you came to church. And you're like, I'm such a hypocrite. I'm like, right. And so you sit in the seat and you're like, oh, I don't think I can sing. And I shouldn't sing. Like I'm such a loser or whatever. Um, like there are times where I blow up on my family on a Thursday and then I have to come here and be like, how are you? <laughs> oh, God bless brother and sister. <laughs> be warm, be filled. You know? And I totally like <laughs> just went nuclear on one of my kids and, and lost it. And you know, I have to go home and apologize to them the next day and stuff. And, and it's super hypocritical. Um, but there are times where like sin will keep us from worship when worship is really the remedy. But, but before there's worship, what, what is there? There's the wash basin. There's the altar. There's the sacrifice. So if you're ever at a place where you're like, man, I can't lift my hands. I can't sing. You remember the altar. The altar in which Jesus Christ was put upon the cross, sacrificed for us. And so now I can come boldly into the throne room of God through worship. The devil's going to try and keep us out. But, but here's the mix-up is we think that we can worship because we got there on our own. You, you can't. Like, you don't access the, the throne room of God because you, you open the veil and, like, walk in. We do it because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Sinfulness will hinder worship. But before we came into the holy place of God in his presence, I come to the altar where sacrifice was made. So now I can enter into communion and worship with him. 
Are we sinners? Yes, absolutely. But we come to the altar of Jesus. In Luke chapter 18, if you remember the story, it says, the Pharisee was standing by himself and he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down from his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How do we keep walking with Jesus? In this day and age, in the science age, and you know, the whole God is dead movement and all this stuff. How do we keep, or, or this hyper-spiritual thing that's going on. We're like, we just all wanted a spiritual experience. And so Joe Rogan's telling everyone to take DMT and that's how you're going to, you know, eat shrooms and that's how you're going to have a spiritual experience. Isn't that so funny how it flip-flops? Like God's dead, but like we want, we know that we're spiritual beings and so people are clinging for it. It's crazy. Here's the point. That was not the point. Joe Rogan is not the point. Here is the point. How do we continue to walk with Jesus? First of all, we're open before the Lord. What did he say? Examine me, Lord. I open my heart to you. Is there sin in my life? If there is, I want to separate from, I want to separate from that personally. I don't want to go to that. And as I, I separate from that personally, I look into my relationships. Is there something that's holding me back? And, and I'm, am I being drugged down by relationships that are, are not of the Lord? There's a cost involved to following Jesus. Um, and part of that, a lot of times, is like relationships that we lose um, because of it. But it's, it's good that we separate in order to keep something holy and pure and right and to continue walking with Jesus. But what does he also say? One of the ways that we continue to walk with the Lord is through humble worship of the King. We keep coming to him humbly, recognizing I am a sinner. I am a hypocrite. I am in need of God. And so I come to you. I worship you because you're the one who is worthy of worship. I continue to stay in that place of worshiping Jesus, always in awe of who he is. But look later in the verse, he says, Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, whose hands are in sinister schemes and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. How do you keep walking with Jesus? Separation from sin. Continue to have relationships that are going to push you towards Jesus. Humbly coming to the Lord in worship of him. And I continue to gather together in the congregation. Keep coming to church. It may sound super old-fashioned and like, okay, of course the pastor is going to tell me to come to church. Like, who's he going to talk to if I'm not here? <laughs> Guys, this is where, like... This is where you're going to grow in your walk with Jesus is by being in his word together. It's where we, where iron sharpens iron. Usually we use that in a men's, like in a men's way, like it's iron, manly iron sharpens other manly iron. But like sisters in Christ have sharp, like we, we still sharpen each other. Like you still, all of us together have something to offer one another because we've been walking with Jesus either longer or shorter or 
our life experience or something that we've gone through, everyone benefits from the body of Christ. If you're a working member, if you're willing to be involved, if you're willing to put forth effort, yeah, it all works. Don't be an atrophied part of the body of Christ where you come, you sit, and just like, yeah, that was great. I didn't like those songs. And then you leave, right? That's not what it's about. Church is not what you can get from it. It's how I can give God glory and then allow myself to be part of the friction in the body of Christ and to see others sharpen, to see others glorified as well. And when that happens, like you too are built up. So there's no secret. It's no secret, man. We just keep walking with Jesus. And it's, it's something good. I know for a lot of people, they get away from church or they get bombed at the church. Brendan McPeak, he said it one time. It was just so good the way he said it. A church can be super weird. A church can hurt you. But the church is alive and well. The church is alive and well. Like a church, oh, for sure, can mess you up because it's made up of people like you. Sorry, Brandon. And you, like, we're like, you know, it, it, the church is made up of people like, like, I'm one of the leaders in the church for crying out loud. Like, the church is going to hurt your feelings sometimes. The, the church is going to be, it, it might do some things that really bum you out sometimes. A church can hurt you, but the church is alive and well, and God is moving and working in the world. Um, and so don't, don't get away from it away from it. Be willing to stand in there. That's why Jesus, I think he was instructing Christians when he said if someone slaps you on the cheek turn the other one. Offer him the other one. That's not just to unbelievers, man. That's to the church. Christians are going to smack you right in the face. Or they're going to stab you in the back. Or they'll stab you right in the front. And what did Jesus say? Don't walk away. Stay. Offer them the other side. Work it out. Talk it out. That's the body of Christ.